first four words there of the passage are the wrath of God. It's quite a way to begin, and it's quite a sharp contrast, isn't it? To I mean, that was beautiful. We, we just listened to, and then we immediately move into the wrath of God. Um, yeah, that's kind of just how sometimes uh, weeks work in church. Uh, if you're working your way, as we are right now, through a series in um, the Bible, we're in the book of Romans, and, and this is the next verse. It's actually a very sharp contrast to what Paul has already written. Because if you were here for last week, you know we talked a lot about the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the, the saving work of Jesus. I said it was new so good that it makes you want to dance in the street and kiss complete strangers, you know. Um, and then he, he goes into the wrath of God. What I want to say before I begin to read is this. You would be angry too. If there is a God... We, we should expect him to be angry at this world. We are angry at this world. I mean, think just how upsetting it is if you have a friend, somebody you love, a child, somebody who is engaging in self-destructive, self-sabotage. I mean, how mad that makes you. Parents, if one of your kids comes home from school and you find out that they are being bullied by somebody else, I mean, that fills you with rage, doesn't it? There's so much to be righteously indignant about in this world. So look, if there is a God, we shouldn't shy away from his wrath. It it just makes sense. It's, It's unfortunate that some churches and traditions have tended to downplay or deny the significance of the wrath of God. The funny thing is, is it goes all the way back to the second century, One of the early Christian heretics was a man by the name of Marcion. He created his own Bible, in essence, by uh, clipping out parts of the Bible he didn't like. And when he came to verse 18 to translate this, Romans 1.18, he he took his eraser out and he erased two words, of God. So verse 18 only reads, wrath is revealed. Because he didn't want the God of the New Testament to be like the God of the Old Testament, a God of wrath. But if God is not a God of wrath, then he is spineless and he is unworthy of even being called God. Verse 18, the wrath of God is unveiled from heaven against all the ungodliness and injustice performed by people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. What can be known of God, you see, is plain to them since God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. As a result, they have no excuse. They knew God, but didn't honor him as God or thank him. Instead, they learned to think in useless ways, and their unwise hearts grew dark. They declared themselves to be wise, but in fact, they became foolish. They swapped the glory of the immortal God for the likeness of the image of mortal humans and of birds and of animals and reptiles. So God gave them up to the uncleanness and the desires of their hearts, with the result that they 
dishonored their bodies among themselves. They swapped God's truth for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So God gave them up to shameful desires. Even the women, you see, swapped natural sexual practice for unnatural. And the men, too, abandoned natural sex relations with women and were inflamed with their lust for one another. Men performed shameless acts with men and received in themselves the appropriate repayment for their mistaken ways. Moreover, just as they did not see fit to hold on to the knowledge of God, God gave them up to an unfit mind so that they would behave inappropriately. They were filled with all kinds of injustice, wickedness, greed, and evil. They were full of envy, murder, enmity, deceit, and cunning. They became gossip, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, self-important, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, unwise, unfaithful, unfeeling, uncaring. They know that God has rightly decreed that people who do things like that deserve death. But not only do they do them, they give their approval to people who practice them. Paul was not the only person to have ever written uh, something like this. There were other Greco-Roman writers in the first and second century who, um, who wrote similarly. They, they looked out on their, the surrounding culture, the pagan culture that they were living in. They saw that it was a morally bankrupt culture. And then in their writings, they would go on to detail all of the personal and cultural degeneracy that they, uh, they saw. So Paul wasn't the first. What was novel, though, about Paul's approach is what he traces all of the moral rot back to. What is the cause of the disease? And according to Paul, and none of the other writers go here, but according to Paul, it all goes back to kind of two things. Suppression and in um, exchange or swap. And this translation says swap. And the one I memorized as a kid, it was exchange. Suppression. Interesting word. Let's, let's think about it for a second. Sometimes we do this with memories, don't we? If a person is traumatized in their childhood because they have been physically or sexually abused, what does the mind do? We, we have an uncanny ability to suppress those instances so that we don't relive them. They don't come up again. On a much more trivial level, if I want to suppress a cough, what do I need to do? I need to, I I have an itchy, scratchy throat. I have a diaphragm that wants to spasm. I've got to take a deep breath or or gulp or, or choke it down. There's something inside of me that wants to come out. It's there. It wants, it, it wants to express itself. And what Paul is saying is whether consciously we do this or unconsciously we do this or probably it's both, but at some very deep level, every human being knows that God is there, but we push back, we suppress, we cough in, we, we, we hold down the knowledge of his existence so that it doesn't have its proper effect on us. We say, nope, there's not a God. Or we say, who cares if there is a God? It doesn't matter to me one way or another. 
But Paul is saying that it, you know, it's not the evidence's fault. It's not that there's insufficient evidence. Famous atheist Bertrand Russell was asked years and years ago, uh, Bertrand, what happens if you get to the end of your life and you're face to face with the Almighty and, some, and God says to you, why didn't you believe in me? And Bertrand Russell's response, you know, it was not enough evidence. But Paul's clear, the problem is not with the evidence. The problem is with hearts that, that don't want to believe in him. Verse 19, let's go, let's look at it. Um, Verse 19, what can be known of God, you see, is plain to them, since God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, these qualities of God have been seen. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen by everybody, being understood from what has been made, and as a result, they have no excuse. See, that's the kind of the ultimately tragic response that I think Bertrand Russell will hear one day is, dude, you have no excuse. No excuse. I'm sure this has happened to you before or something like it. You are out camping with a friend or a family member who's not a Christian. They're an atheist. They're agnostic. They're, they don't even know what they are. You're out camping at a, a beautiful place like Yosemite or Yellowstone, and you're watching the pink sunlight set on El Capitan, and your friend turns to you. It's, just, it's, it's one of those, um, those moments, or how would you put it? I don't know, serendipitous moments. They turn to you and they say, I know somebody made this. I don't even believe in God, but I know somebody made this. I know that if a bomb goes off in a paint factory, you don't get the Mona Lisa as a result. <laughs> I know that somebody has designed this. And that's, people, they can deny the existence of God, but like everybody has those moments where it is undeniable. You, it's just simply undeniable. Maybe you've done this. You've been driving along the interstate in some parts of our country, and you come across a billboard from God. Um, I hope we don't have these in Idaho. I don't know if I've ever seen them here. But yeah, it's a billboard from God. It's a, it's a quote from God, and then it has his name attached to the end. Like, these are very insightful. Let's meet at my house before the big game on Sunday. Quote God. <laughs> if you take my name in vain, your rush hour commute will keep getting longer. God, <laughs> you know. You say, oh, brother, who thought, who in their right mind thought that that was a good idea to pay for one of those? God already has a universe of billboards. God has an entire universe of billboards. Every sunset that people see, every face that you look at, every flower, every piece of delicious food, everything out there in the created world it yells to us that there's a creator. And you've got to try pretty hard to suppress that. Now, God is there. Verse 21, let's look at it. <clears throat> How does man respond to the fact that God is there? Mankind's response is a refusal to glorify God or thank him. 21, though they knew God from what had been made, 
uh, I'm sorry, that they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or thank him. Instead, they learned to think in useless ways and their unwise hearts grew dark. They declared themselves to be wise, but in fact, they became foolish. As one uh, reader of this astutely observes, this is what Paul thinks is the baseline human condition. He's not writing about some wacky fringe, uh, a wacky group, crazy group of people on the fringes of society that you read about in the newspaper. Because in the very next chapter, he will say, all of you religious people, you basically do the same stuff too. This is the fundamental state of our hearts that we know and we suppress and we do not give thanks. We're fundamentally ungrateful and we do not glorify. And here's the question. How do you help somebody recognize that? How do you recognize somebody that they are suppressing the truth about God in their lives? I don't even... It's more of a rhetorical question because I don't have an answer for you. I just, I w- but I'd love for you to think about it. I mean, how does somebody, how do you even discover that, oh, I am suppressing the truth and my mind is growing dark? Which leads us to the wrath of God. If I were to give you a piece of paper and told you, to draw for me on this piece of paper the wrath of God. I'll give you any color of crayon you wish. <laughs> White piece of paper, draw for me the wrath of God. What is it that you would draw? You would draw, you would draw fire, brimstone, hail, pestilence, plagues, frogs in your cupboards. You know, you would... Jonathan Edwards' sermon, you and I both read it in English class, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was his most famous writing, unfortunately, because it's not his best writing by a long long shot. But this is that famous passage from it. God holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds the spider or some loathsome insect over the fire. He abhors you, is dreadfully provoked by you. His wrath Towards you burns like a fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but, else but to be cast into the flame. You know, when he preached that sermon, he had people, he was such an incredible preacher, he had people passing out in, in the church itself because he was able to do it in such a way that it, it gripped people. Um, I'm not that good. <laughs> and I'm not that good, and that's not Paul's picture. See how Paul describes it. The wrath of God is not some fire tornado descending from heaven onto earth. The wrath of God is simply when God lets you have what you want. That's it. Three times he says, God gave them over or God gave them up. Gave, gave them over. Gave them over to what? Gave them over to their desires. The wrath of God is clearly seen when he actually lets you do what you want and gives people over to your strongest desires. Oscar Wilde famously said that when the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. It's not exactly true, but it's close. When God's wrath is really kindled, he, he simply says, okay, 
okay, ride your tiger. Have it the way you want. Unless we get the wrong impression here that God is some mad scientist who reaches inside of our brains and rewires us to make us more evil than we ought to be, and then he punishes us for that. No, it's all he does is he just takes his restraining hand away. He does nothing. If I have a patch of grass in my backyard that I want to grow weeds in, what do I have to do to grow weeds in it? It's absolutely, absolutely nothing. And people sometimes, they get really angry. How can God send people to hell? And the answer is, all he has to do is just open the door and let them go. Because that's, that's where their desires will take them. Three times, verse 24, verse 26, and 28. God gave them up to uncleanness and the desires of their hearts, and they dishonored their bodies. Verse 26, gave them up to shameful desires. And then 28, gave them up to an unfit mind so that they would behave inappropriately. I never realized this before, but when you go through the passage and you look at the categories Paul uses to describe human sin— Normally, the way you and I talk about and with our, the tradition that's been handed down to us from the Reformation is we, are, we work in legal categories. There is guilt. There is, um, you're, you're guilty, you're pardoned. You're, you're guilty, you're not guilty. It's all legal terminology. That is not the language that Paul uses here. Did you see, he basically talks about mankind's sin as uncleanness, impurity, vileness. Um, It's like you take a golden statue from the Oscars and you vomit up, and this is kind of gross, but you vomit up the contents of your stomach over that golden statue. That would be the picture of human sin because every one of us are created in the image of God. We're all, we're all little statues of God. And then what we do is we just vomit on each other. We vomit on ourselves, and it's just simply, it's disgusting. That's how he describes it. How do we, how do we do our, I don't want to use the word vomit again in sermon. I've already (laughs) exceeded the sermon limit for that word. Um, we, We just relentlessly pursue our desires. Again and again, that word desires they're not just desires, they're uber desires. They're desires on steroids. They're, they're good desires for sex that get twisted into consuming desires. They're good desires for bodily pleasure that begin to drive us kind of like animals. And the more and more we feed our appetites, the less satisfying it becomes. It enslaves us. John Ortberg humorously remarks uh, along these lines. He said, recently my wife and I went fly fishing for the first time. Our guides told us that to catch a fish, you have to think like a fish. And to a fish, basically fish life is see a fly, want a fly, eat a fly. They said to fish, you know, life is about maximum gratification of appetite at the minimum expenditure of energy. (laughs) I got to thinking about that. To catch a fish, you have to think like a fish. Man, fish are dumb. I was struck by how dumb fish are. Hey, swallow this. It's not the real thing. It's got a hook in it. 
You'd think that fish would wise up and notice the hook or see the line. You'd think fish would look around at all their fish friends who fly off into space and never return. You'd think fish would call into question the notion of it can't be wrong when it feels so right. But they don't learn. We say fish swim together in a school, but they never learn. How ironic. (laughs) Aren't you glad you're smarter than they are? I think he's right. Human life at its worst is just life that is driven by our appetite. Nothing but sheer appetite. It's a tragedy. Look at the bulletin on the front of the bulletin. Uh, You know, the saddest thing to me in looking back at my life has been to recall not so much the wickedness I've been involved in, the cruel and selfish, egotistical things I've done, the hurt I've inflicted on other people, although that's painful enough. What hurts the most is the preference I have so often shown for what is inferior and 10th rate when the first rate was there to have for the taking. It's like we were satisfied with just all the junk food when you know, caviar is available to us. Verse 23, look there uh, one more time, a couple more times. We keep going back to the passage, and that's good. 23. It says, they swapped the glory of the immortal God for the likeness of image, uh, the likeness of the image of mortal humans and of birds, animals, and reptiles. They swapped God's truth for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. We can shake our head at those primitive ancient people who would actually carve and worship stone and wooden figurines. But a more expansive definition of idolatry, and some of you are probably tired of hearing this definition of idolatry because I've given it to you so many times in the past, but an an idol can be just anything that takes the place in your heart that God, that should be occupied by God alone. An idol is when our emotions get all tied up around that thing and we begin to develop needs and expectations surrounded around that thing when our minds are preoccupied and it begins to rule our behavior. Paul talks about birds, animals, and reptiles, but you know you know, we can easily substitute money, power, sex, success, acceptance, We don't kneel before a statue of Aphrodite, but many young men and women today are driven into depression and eating disorder by an obsessive concern about their body image. Tim Keller says, we don't actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. You know, countless presidential candidates will say that they're running for office on behalf of their families, even though their entire lives have been spent away from their families on the campaign trail. Their children and their spouses, they're alienated from. And no wonder, no wonder they engage in extramarital affairs or take other desperate measures to self-medicate the inner emptiness. People will sacrifice anything, everything, to and for their God. You will sacrifice everything to the God of success, 
to the God of pleasure, to the God of sex. In ancient times, it was said that the gods were bloodthirsty and hard to appease. Well, guess what? They still are. They still are. Let's finish by considering this. Um, If you look out on creation, there are things Paul says you can know about God. What are they? You can know that he's invisible. You can know that he's eternal. You can know that he's divine and, and that he's powerful. Is there anything else, when you look out on creation, is there anything else out there that you can't know about God? Can you really know that God is loving? When you look at a tsunami, does the tsunami say, man, I know that there is a God of love behind this universe? When you look at nature and you look at a predatory animal with blood dripping down its teeth and pieces of flesh hanging out of its mouth, does that tell you the love of God? I mean, maybe the March of the Penguins tells you about the love of God, but a Jew like Paul would not have actually seen that. (laughs) But no, nature is for the most part brutal. Where do we come to know the love of God from? It's at the cross. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. And here in the death of Christ, I live. You probably heard the story that there was a a denomination which wanted to use the Gettys song, uh, Keith and Kristen, is that right? Christian Getty's song in Christ Alone, but they wanted to use it without the wrath of God being satisfied. They said, let us, we want to change that to something else. And the Getty said, no, you can't, you can't sing our song because that is what happened on the cross. The wrath of God was satisfied. I'm not going to explain to you how that happened or, you know, the, the mechanics of how that happened, at least not yet. We're going to wait until Romans chapter 3. I, I just have to whet your appetite that on the cross, the wrath of God and the love of God, they kiss. They kiss on the cross. I've got to say something, though, about verses 26 and 27. If you, you can't help but you know, see those, they just jump off the page. Obviously, some of the most controversial passages in all the Bible with regard to, you know, huge topic of consideration today, same-sex behavior, same-sex attraction. Um, What's the Bible's view on same-sex sexual activity? You know, the Bible's view is, in the Old Testament, same-sex activity is prohibited. and In the New Testament, it's clearly prohibited. But that's not all that can be said. If you're a person who does struggle with same-sex attraction um, and you, you want help, you want, you want to understand better what the Bible teaches and you also you want somebody to come alongside and, and talk with you, um, there, are, there are so many good resources out there over the last few years that have been produced. And I would... Honestly, I would love to be able to help you in any way I can. If you go out and try to read all the material on your own and all the stuff about first century culture and what kind of same-sex 
behavior is being prohibited here in verses 26 and 27. I kid you not, if you were to stack all that literature on top of it, it would be like 300 feet tall. There's so much stuff. People saying, Paul's saying this. No, Paul's saying this. I really think I can boil it down for you um, into a smaller bite-sized portion. And so, yeah, if you you want help with same-sex attraction, I would love to be able to help in any way that I can. The other person I wanted to address before I finish is if you're, maybe there's several people here who struggle with the existence of God. You're wrestling with whether or not God actually exists. What I want you to think of, this is the image that I, or metaphor I've been given. I think it's, it's good. Imagine a kiddie pool. Small plastic kid pool, maybe, I don't know, four feet, five feet across. It's filled up halfway with water. Suppose somebody throws about a dozen ping pong balls onto the surface of that pool and says, your job, if you, if you wish to, your task, if you want to fulfill it, is to keep all of those ping pong balls under the water at the same time. But you have to do it only with your body. And you say, I, I'm up for that, that, that challenge. So what do you do to keep the ping pong balls over? I mean, you, you dive, you, your whole torso goes in, your hands go in, your head goes in, your face goes in. If there's only a dozen ping pong balls, you might be able to keep them all under the water. Probably not, <laughs> but only for a little while. And they, they have a way of just, they keep popping up. And I bet, I bet that is kind of how God has been working in your life. He keeps having this annoying way of popping up again and again, no matter how many times you want to deny him. You're watching a sunset, and you know God is there. You're sitting in a funeral. You know God is there. There are moments where it's undeniable. You know God is there. And you know what God wants to do there? He wants to save you. John 3.16 doesn't read that God was so angry with the world that he gave his only begotten son. It says he so loved the world that he gave. He, he gave up his son. Do you see the parallel? Here is God's judgment on mankind. He gives them up to their desires and to their sins. There in the gospel, what does he do? He gives his son up to the, to the penalty that is due their sin. Um, the the good news is great news if you fully understand how bad the bad news is. It's the black backdrop from which the gospel uh, that God wishes to save you with truly shines. Amen.